Hey everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode. I was inspired to start this podcast because of my sons. I trust that reading these books with them will inspire them to continue to broaden their minds and have amazing conversations as a result. I trust that all of you will also be inspired by these books, learn learn more about our world and its residents, have profound conversations, broaden your mind, and continue to foster your love of reading. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter at gmail.com and I'll put it on the reading list. This episode, we're reading The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, and we are currently on page 146. So, before we begin, let's not forget our favorite drink. And as we know, that can be anything we like to have. I like to have a nice drink and curl up with a book. That's what I like to do. So, here we go. The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album. Page 146, the title is The Fourth Person Eddie Meets in Heaven. Eddie blinked and found himself in a small, sorry, in a small round room. The mountains were gone and so was the jade sky. A low plaster ceiling just missed his head. The room was brown, as plain as shipping wrapping, and empty, save for a wooden stool and an oval mirror on the wall. Eddie stepped in front of the mirror. He cast no reflection. He saw only the reverse of the room which expanded suddenly to include a row of doors. Eddie turned around. Then he coughed. The sound startled him as if it came from someone else. He coughed again, a hard, rumbling cough, as if things needed to be resetted, resettled in his chest. When did this start, Eddie thought. He touched his skin, which had aged since his time with Ruby. It felt thinner now and drier. His midsection, which during his time with the captain had felt tight as pulled rubber, was loose with flab, the droop of age. There are still two people for you to meet, Ruby had said. And then what? His lower back had a dull ache. His bad leg was getting stiffer. He realized what was happening. It happened with each new stage of heaven. He was rotting away. He approached one of the doors and pushed it open. Suddenly he was outside. In the yard of a home he had never seen. In a land that he did not recognize. In the midst of what appeared to be a wedding reception. Guests holding silver plates filled the glassy lawn. At one end stood an archway covered in red flowers and birch branches, and at the other end, next to Eddie, stood the door that he had walked through. The bride, young and pretty, was in the center of the group, removing a pin, removing a pin from her butter-colored hair. The room was lanky. He wore a black. Sorry, the groom was lanky. He wore a black wedding coat and held up a sword, and at the hilt of the sword was a ring. He lowered it toward the bride, and guests cheered as she took it. Eddie heard their voices, but the language was foreign. German, Swedish. He coughed again. The group looked up. Every person seemed to smile, and the smiling frightened Eddie. He backed quickly through the door from which he had entered, figuring to return to the round room. Instead, he was in the middle of another wedding, indoors this time, in a large hall, where the people looked Spanish and the bride wore orange blossoms in her hair. She was dancing from one partner to the next, and each guest handed her a small sack of coins. Eddie coughed again. He couldn't help it. And when several of the guests looked up, he backed through the door and again entered a different wedding scene. Something African, Eddie guessed, 
where families poured wine onto the ground and the couple held hands and jumped over a broom. Then another passed through the door to a Chinese reception where firecrackers were lit before the cheering attendees. And then another doorway to something else, maybe French, where the couple drank together from a two-handled cup. How long does this go on, Eddie thought. In each reception, there was no sign of how the people had gotten there. No cars or buses, no wagons or horses. Departure did not appear to be an issue. The guests milled about and Eddie was absorbed as one of them. Smiled but never spoken to much like the handful of weddings he had gone to on earth. He preferred it that way. Weddings were, in Eddie's mind, too full of embarrassing moments, like when couples were asked to join in a dance or to help lift the bride in a chair. His bad legs seemed to glow at these moments, and he felt as if he could see it from across the room. Because of that, Eddie avoided most receptions, and when he did go, and when he did go, he often stood in the parking lot smoking a cigarette, waiting for time to pass. For a long stretch, there were no weddings to attend anyhow. Only in the late years in his life, when some of his teenage peer workers had grown up and taken spouses. Had grown up and taken spouses, did he find himself getting the faded suit out of the closet and putting on the collared shirt that pinched his thick neck. By this point, his once-fractured leg bones were spurred and deformed. Arthritis had invaded his knee. <clears throat> he limped badly and was thus excused from all participatory moments such as dances or candle lightings. He was considered an old man, alone, unattached, and no one expected him to do much besides smile when the photographer came to the table. Here now in his maintenance clothes, he moved from one wedding to the next, one reception to another, one language, one cake, and one type of music to another language, another cake, and another type of music. The uniformity did not surprise Eddie. He always figured a wedding here was not much different from a wedding there. What he didn't get was what this had to do with him. He pushed through the threshold one more time and found himself in what appeared to be an Italian village. There were many vineyards on the hillsides and farmhouses of travertine stone. Many of the men had thick black hair, combed back and wet, and the woman had dark eyes and sharp features. Eddie found a place against a wall and watched the bride and groom cut a log in half with, two, with a two-handed ripsaw. Music played, flutists, violinists, guitarists, and guests began the tarantella, dancing in a wild, twirling rhythm. Eddie took a few steps back. His eyes wandered to the edge of the crowd a bridesmaid in a, in a long lavender dress and a stitched straw hat moved through the guests with a basket of candy-covered almonds. From afar, she looked to be in her twenties. Perlamo el dolci, she said, offering her sweets. Perlamo el dolci? Perlamo el dolci. At the sound of her voice, Eddie's whole body shook. He began to sweat. Something told him to run, but something else froze his feet to the ground. She came his way. Her eyes found him from beneath the hat brim, which was topped with parchment flowers. Palamo el dolci, she said, smiling, holding out the almonds, for the bitter and the sweet. Her dark hair fell over one eye, and Eddie's heart nearly burst. His, lip took a moment to, his lips took a moment to part, and the sound from the back of his throat took a moment to rise. But they came together in the first letter of the only name that ever made him feel this way. He dropped to his knees. Marguerite, he whispered. For the bitter and the sweet, she said. 
Today is Eddie's birthday. Eddie and his brother are sitting in the maintenance shop. This, Joe says proudly, holding up a drill, is the newest model. Joe is wearing a checkered sport coat and black and white sandal shoes. Eddie thinks his brother looks too fancy, and fancy means phony. But Joe is a salesman for a hardware company, and Eddie has been wearing the same outfit for years, so what does he know? Yes, sir, Joe said, and get this, it runs on that battery. Eddie holds the battery between his fingers and a small thing called nickel cadmium. Hard to believe. Start it up, Joe says, handing over the drill. Eddie squeezes the trigger, explodes in noise. Nice, huh? Joe yells. That morning, Joe had told Eddie his new salary. It was three times what Eddie makes. Then Joe had congratulated Eddie on his promotion, head of maintenance for Ruby Pier, his father's old position. Eddie had wanted to answer. If it's so great, why don't you take it, and I'll take your job. But he didn't. Eddie never said anything. He felt that deeply. Hello, anybody in here? Marguerite is at the door, holding a reel of orange tickets. Eddie's eyes go, as always, to her face, her olive skin, her dark coffee eyes. She has taken a job in the ticket booth this summer, and she wears the official Ruby Pier uniform, a white shirt, a red vest, black stirrup pants, a red beret, and her name on a pin below her collarbone. The sight of it makes Eddie angry, especially in front of his hotshot brother. Show her the drill, Joe says. He turns to Marguerite. It's battery operated. Eddie squeezes. Marguerite rubs her, grabs her ears. It's louder than your snoring, she says. Whoa, Joe yells laughing. Whoa, she got you. Eddie looks down sheeplessly then sees his wife smiling. Can you come outside, she says. Eddie waves the drill. I'm working here. Just for a minute, okay? Eddie stands up slowly, then follows her out the door. The sun hits his face. Happy birthday, Mr. Eddie, a group of children scream in unison. Well, I'll be, Eddie says. Marguerite yells, okay, kids, put the candles on the cake. The children race to a vanilla sheet cake sitting on a nearby folding table. Marguerite leans toward Eddie and whispers, I promised them you'd blow out all 38 at once. Eddie snorts. He watches his wife organize the group. As always with Marguerite and children, his mood is lifted by her easy connection to them and dampened by her inability to have them. One doctor said she was too nervous. Another said she waited too long. She should have had them by age 25. In time, they ran out of money for doctors. It was what it was. For nearly a year now, she had been talking about adoption. She went to the library. She brought home papers. Eddie said they were too old. She said, what's too old to a child? Eddie said he'd think about it. All right. She yells from, all right, she yells now from a sheet cake. Come on, Mr. Eddie, blow them out. Oh, wait, wait. She fishes in a, fishes in a bag and pulls out a camera, a comp complicated contraption with rods and tabs and a round flash bob. Charlene, let me use it. It's a Polaroid. Marguerite lines up the picture. Eddie over the cake, the children squeezing in around him, admiring the 38 little flames. One kid pokes Eddie and says, Blow them all out, okay? Eddie looks down. The frosting is a mess full of little handprints. Sorry. The frosting is a mess full of countless little handprints. I will, Eddie says, but he is looking at his wife. Eddie stared at the young Marguerite. It's not you, he said. She lowered her almond basket. She smiled sadly. The Tarantella debt was dancing behind them, and the sun was fading behind a ribbon of white clouds. It's not you, Eddie said again. The dancers yelled, 
Hoo-hee! They banged the tambourines. She offered her hand, and he reached for it quickly, instinctively, as if grabbing for a falling object. Their fingers met, and he never felt such a sensation, as if flesh were forming over his own flesh, soft and warm and almost ticklish. She knelt down beside him. It's not you, he whispered. It is me, she whispered. Hoo-hee! It's not you, it's not you, Eddie mumbled, as he dropped his head onto her shoulder, and for the first time since his death, began to cry. Their own wedding took place on Christmas Eve on the second floor of a dimly lit Chinese restaurant called Sammy Hong's. The owner, Sammy, agreed to rent it for that night, figuring he'd have a little other business. Eddie took what cash he had left from the army and spent it on the reception, roast chicken and Chinese vegetables, and port wine in a man with an accordion. The chairs were for the ceremony were needed for the dinner, so once the vows were taken, the waiters asked the guests to rise, then carried the chairs downstairs to the table. The accordion man sat on a stool. Years later, Marguerite would joke that the only thing missing from their wedding were the bingo cards. When the meal was finished and some gifts were given, a final toast was offered and the accordion man packed his case. Eddie and Marguerite left through the front door. It was raining lightly, a, chill, a chilly rain. But the bride and groom walked home together, seeing it, seeing as it was only a few blocks. Marguerite wore her wedding dress beneath a thick pink sweater. Eddie wore his white suit coat, the shirt pinching his neck. They held hands. They moved through pools of lamplight. Everything around them seemed buttoned up tight. People say they find love as if it were a hidden object by a rock. Sorry, as if it were an object hidden by a rock. But love takes many forms, and <clears throat> it is never the same for any man and woman. What people find, then, is a certain love. And Eddie found a certain love with Marguerite. A grateful love. A deep but quiet love. One that he knew, above all else, was irreplaceable. Once she'd gone, he'd let the days go stale. He put his heart to sleep. Now here she was again, as young as the day they were wed. Walk with me, she said. Eddie tried to stand, but his bad knee buckled. She lifted him effortlessly. Your leg, she said, regarding the faded scar with a tender familiarity. Then she looked up and touched the tufts of hair above his ears. It's white, she said, smiling. Eddie couldn't get his tongue to move. He couldn't do much but stare. She was exactly as he remembered. More beautiful, really, for his final memories of her had been as an old, suffering woman. He stood beside, beside her, silent, until her, her dark eyes narrowed and her lips crept up mischievously. Eddie, she almost giggled, have you forgotten so fast how I used to look? Eddie swallowed. I never forgot that. She touched his, eye, his face lightly and the warm, warmth spread through his body. She motioned to the village and the dancing guests. All weddings, she said happily. That was my choice. A world of weddings behind every door. Oh, Eddie, it never changes when the groom lifts the veil, when the bride accepts the ring, the possibilities you see in their eyes. It's the same around the world. They truly believe their love and their marriage is going to break all the records. She smiled. Do, we, do you think we had that? Eddie didn't know how to answer. We had an accordion player, he said. They walked from the reception and up the gravel path. The music faded to a background noise. Eddie wanted to tell her everything he had seen, everything that had happened. He wanted to tell her about every little thing and every big thing, too. He felt a churning inside him, a, so a stop-start anxiety. He had, nowhere to be he had no idea where to begin. 
You did this too, he said finally. You met five people? She nodded. I met different five people, he said. Sorry, she nodded. A different five people, he said. She nodded again. And they explained everything and it made a difference? She smiled. All the difference. She touched his chin. And then I waited for you. He studied her eyes, her smile. He wondered if her waiting had felt like his. How much do you know about me? I mean, how much do you know since... He still had trouble saying it. Since you died? She removed the straw hat and pushed the thick young locks away from her forehead. Well, I know everything that happened when we were together. She pursed her lips. And now I know why it happened. She put her hands on her chest. And I also know that you loved me dearly. She took his other hand then. He felt the melting warmth. I don't know how you died, she said. Eddie thought for a moment. I'm not sure either, he said. There was a girl, a little girl. She wandered into this ride and she was in trouble. Marguerite's gaze widened. She looked so young. This was harder than Eddie figured, telling his wife about the day he was killed. They have these rides, see, these new rides. Nothing like what we used to have. Everyone has to go a thousand miles an hour now. Anyhow, this one ride, it drops these carts, and the hydraulics are supposed to stop it, bring it down slowly, but something sliced the cable, the cart snapped loose. I still can't figure it, but the cart dropped because I told them to release it. I mean, I told Dom, he's this kid who works with me now. It wasn't his fault, but I told him, and then I tried to stop it, but he couldn't hear me. And this little girl was just standing, just sitting there, and I tried to reach her, I tried to save her. I felt her little hands, but then I... He stopped. She tilted her head, urging him to go on. He exhaled deeply. I ain't talked about this much since I got here, he said. She nodded and smiled, a gentle smile. And at the sight of it, his eyes began to moisten, and a wave of sadness washed over him. And suddenly, just like that, none of this mattered. Nothing about his death or the park or the crowd he had yelled to get yelled at to get back. Why was he talking about this? What was he doing? Was he really with her? Like a hidden grieving that rises to grab the heart, his soul was ambushed with old emotions, and his lips began to tremble, and he was swept into the current of all that he had lost. He was looking at his wife, his dead wife, his young wife, his missing wife, his only wife, and he didn't want to look anymore. Oh God, Marguerite, he whispered. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I can't say, I can't say, I can't say. He dropped his head into his hands, and he had, and he said it anyhow. He said what everyone says, what anyone says, rather. I missed you so much. Today is Eddie's birthday. The racetrack is crowded with summer customers. The women wear straw sun hats and the smoke, and the men smoke cigars. Eddie and Noel leave work early to play Eddie's birthday number, 39, in the Daily Double. They sit on slatted, folded, fold-down seats. At their feet are paper cups of beer and missed a carpet of discarded tickets. Earlier, Eddie won the first race of the day. He'd put half of those winning on the sec winnings on the second race and won that as well. The first time such a thing has ever happened to him. That gave him $209. After losing twice in smaller bets, he put it all on a horse to win in the sixth. 
because, as he and Noel agreed, in exuberant logic, he'd arrive with next to nothing. So what harm? What harm done if we went home the same way? Just think if you win, Noel says now. You'll have all that dough for the kid. The bell rings. The horses are off. They bunch together on the fair, far straightaway. Their colorful six blur, silks burn, blurring with their bumpy movements. Eddie has number eight, a horse named Jersey Finch, which isn't a bad gamble, not at four to one. But when Noel, what, when, sorry, <laughs> but no, what Noel has just said about the kid, the one Eddie and Marguerite are planning to adopt, flashes him with guilt. They could have used that money. Why did he do things like this? The crowd rises, the horses come down the stretch. Jersey Finch moves outside and lengthens into a full stride. The cheering mixes with thunderous hooves. Noel hollers. Eddie squeezes, squeezes his ticket. He is more nervous than he wants to be. His skin goes bumpy. One her horse pulls ahead of the pack. Jersey Finch. Now Eddie has nearly $800. I gotta call home, he says. You're ruining it, Noel says. What are you talking about? You tell somebody you ruin your luck. You're nuts. Don't do it. I'm calling her. It'll make her happy. It won't make her happy. He limps to a pain phone and drops in a nickel. Marguerite answers. Eddie tells her the news. Noelle is right. She is not happy. She tells him to come home. He tells her to stop telling him what to do. We have a baby coming, she scolds. Scolds. You can't keep behaving like this. Eddie hangs up the phone with the heat with a heat between behind his ears. He goes back to Noelle, who is eating peanuts at the railing. Let me guess, Noelle says. They go to the window and pick another horse. Eddie takes the money from his pocket. Half of him doesn't want it anymore, and half of him wants it twice as much. So he can throw it on the bed when he gets home and tells his wife, Here, buy what you want, okay? Sorry, here, buy whatever you want, okay? Noel watches him push the bills through the opening. He raises his eyebrows. I know, I know, Eddie says. What he does not know is that Marguerite, unable to call him back, has chosen to drive to the track and find him. She feels badly about yelling, this being his birthday, and she wants to apologize. She also wants him to stop. She knows from evenings past that Noelle will insist they stay until closing. Noelle is like that. And since the track is only ten minutes away, she grabs her handbag and drives their second-hand Nash Rambler down Ocean Parkway. She turns on Leicester Street. The sun is gone and the sky is in flux. Most of the cars are coming from the other direction. She approaches the Leicester Street overpass, which used to be how customers reached the track, up the stairs over the street and back down the stairs again, until the track owners paid the city for a traffic light, which left the overpass, for the most part, deserted. But on this night it is not deserted. It holds two teenagers who do not want to be found. Two 17-year-olds our, who, hours earlier, had been chased from a liquor store after stealing five cartons of cigarettes and three pints of old Harper's whiskey. Now, having finished the alcohol and smoked many of the cigarettes, they are bored with the evening, and they dangle their empty bottles over the lip of the rusted railing. Dare me, one says. Dare ya, says the other. The first one lets the bottle drop, and they duck behind the metal grate to watch. It just misses a car and shatters onto the pavement. Whoa, the second one yells. Did you see that? Drop yours now, chicken. The second one stands, holds out his bottle, and chooses the sparse traffic off of the right-hand lane. He wiggles the bottle back and forth, trying to time the drop to land between vehicles, as if this was some sort of art, and he was some sort of artist. His finger released. He almost smiles. 
Forty feet below, Marguerite never thinks to look up, never thinks that anything might be happening on that overpass, never thinks about anything besides getting Eddie out of, the, out of that racetrack while he still has some money left. She's wondering what section of the grandstand to look to, look into. Even as old, even as the old Harper's whiskey bottle smashes her windshield into a spray of flying glass, her car veers into the concrete divider, her body is tossed like a doll, slamming against the door and the dashboard and the steering wheel, lacerating her liver and breaking her arm and thumping her head so hard she loses touch with the sounds of the evening. She does not hear the screeching of cars. She does not hear the honking of horns. She does not hear the retreat of the rubber-soled sneakers running down the Leicester Street overpass and off into the night. Love like rain can nourish from above, drenching couples with a soaking joy. But sometimes, under the angry heat of life, love dries on the surface and must nourish from below, tending to its roots, roots rather, keeping itself alive. I actually like that statement, which is why I went a little bit over today, but I'm going to stop there and we are going and we are going to continue from there next week. So that is page 164. I trust that you have enjoyed this part of the five people you meet in heaven. I'm looking forward to finding out why Marguerite is one of his people and what that means for his death and what that means for his life. She says she understands so much more. I look forward to finding out what she meant by that and finding out what her purpose is, what she's there to teach him. So I trust that this few pages have broadened your mind, inspired your thoughts or a conversation. Maybe it changed your world a little bit, your concept of love maybe, or entertained you. Whatever it's done for you, I trust that it has served you. And remember everyone that your flame, your fire, will always burn. Lighting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will only create a larger fire. Please everyone, go on Instagram, follow me at chapter by chapter 256 or at Miss Felicia J or both for that matter. Check out Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine on Spotify. It's my other um, podcast. I really trust that all of you share, like, and follow. All of you are so important to me. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I really have so enjoyed reading this book with you. And I have been actually enjoying this book with you. Tune in next week for um, the continuation. So we'll start on page 164. I think actually we're going to finish this book next week. So stay tuned for next week so we can finish reading this book together. Have a great day and a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, be well.